Let me invite you to turn this morning to Luke chapter 22. You may be surprised uh, to be turning to Luke instead of to Hebrews. And if you're visiting with us, uh, I I would like for you to know that we are currently in the midst of preaching through the book of Hebrews. That is the typical model that we espouse here at Redeemer Baptist Church. We seek to preach through books of the Bible uh, in their entirety, expositionally, to give some understanding to the way that God has given them to us. We think that that's the most faithful way to understand them. Uh, It helps to keep me from error and picking and choosing those things, which I would uh, maybe want to say to you, uh, and perhaps uh, not listen always to God in saying what he would say to you. But We're going to take a break for this week and next week. And I think that's appropriate from time to time. We've been laboring with Hebrews for some time. Um, But we're going to take a break in light of two things. Number one, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think it's appropriate now that we'll turn to this text in light of the upcoming Easter season. As we think this week about the weekend that is coming and as we build with anticipation moving toward the weekend where we think on and reflect on and celebrate what Christ has done for us in his death, burial, and resurrection, I think it's appropriate to turn now uh, to a passage. We're going to be looking at uh, the meal that he has with his disciples just before he is crucified. Uh, Maybe that will help to inform our week and set our mind in the right direction. Um, Also, I think it's appropriate because this morning uh, we will be gathering around the Lord's table together. And so in Luke 22, we have one of the passages in the New Testament where we see Jesus himself instituting this meal and commanding its regular observance. And one of the things that I desire to do is to help us understand from time to time, we stop and preach on this. I looked back, it's been a couple of years since I've done that. But we want to teach on our practices and how we gather and why we gather and what it is that we do when we gather around this table. Never want to take for granted that all of us understand those things. And so um, I want us to look to Luke 22 and to seek some clarity on what this is from this meal, what we can learn. And when we come to this meal, how we are to do it in a way that would honor God. Very simply put, um, I want you to know that our children's Uh, Our children's lessons this morning were also geared toward this. They took a break from their regular study. Pastor Chase actually taught the two children's classes collectively, gave them an opportunity on their level and in their space to to ask questions maybe that they might have and to learn uh, what, what we do when we come to this table. So let's look at Luke 22. We're going to be considering particularly verses 14 through 23. Let's pray and ask God to give us wisdom and sight as we read. And uh, then we'll begin reading in verse 14 together. God in heaven, what a privilege we have to come to your word. In our sin, God, we do not deserve even that. Yet in your grace and mercy, you've given it. More than that, you have called us to love and read it, to study and know it. And so we seek now to do that but we recognize that we can't. According to our nature and the sin that remains in us, God, we can't, apart from the working of your Spirit. And so we ask, on account of Christ our Lord, God, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds and our eyes this morning. Maybe we've had a bad morning and we're distracted. Maybe we've spent no time whatsoever preparing 
for this time. We've totally forsaken that responsibility. God, we, we beg of you, open our eyes to this text for your glory, that you would be glorified through us who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. God, open this text to us and teach us what only you can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Luke 22, beginning to read in verse 14, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. So we have to understand that as Jesus looks now to gather with his disciples at this time, he has a very specific intention. And that intention is to define and interpret for them what is coming in the hours to come, what is going to be very confusing for them. Here are the disciples. They have left everything to follow Jesus based on his command. They have come in some way to believe and understand as he claimed that he is God and that if they are to be reconciled with God, that it will only be through Christ. Now, they don't understand those realities in their fullness, but they have come to assent to some degree these gospel truths. But having given up everything for Jesus to follow after him and to abandon their Jewish heritage and religion in favor of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are now going to witness his death. So just to put it plainly, scandalous and difficult. That This is not, when you think of like the life I want to live, this is not going to be it. They're following this man, pursuing him in his life, and his life is leading to this brutal, gruesome death. It's going to look like a failure. It's going to be very confusing for these disciples. It's going to be difficult for them to swallow and understand. So he now sets before them a right understanding and interpretation of the events that are to come. That, that's his goal. He is seeking to define his death for those that would follow after him. Now he does that at a meal. And in that meal, he's going to institute the observance of a ceremonial meal that we're going to participate in even together here today. But before we get to those exact or direct applications to this time and this meal, I want us to see what was going on with Christ at this meal with his disciples on this night with his intent to define his death for them and to help them understand what it was that he was doing. And it's very interesting. I want us to consider three things. First, centrality with regard to the death of Christ. Second, community. And third, substitution. Right? But centrality. 
It's not insignificant, though I think we often simply miss it in the text or move beyond it very quickly in the text. It is one of the most significant realities that he does not seek to establish this understanding for the disciples at just any meal. But it is at Passover. Look at what he says. I have earnestly, verse 15, desired to eat this Passover with you. Interestingly here, the English, you may see a few different things of earnestly desired. They they fail because we, we can't really translate this. The force of this desire is so strong that it's actually interpreted elsewhere or um, it, 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 is, it is given elsewhere as lust. We have a tough time understanding the depth of which with which Jesus desires to eat this meal with his disciples. But he says, I've earnestly desired not just to eat a meal with you so that I can teach you something and use a meal as a picture, but to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, before I die. What was the Passover? We've, we've got to understand something of the Passover because Jesus, Jesus sets his death for his disciples inside of the framework of this Old Testament heritage and the historical reality of the Passover meal. Well, we know something of the Passover. The Passover is the story of when God led his people out of Egypt, right? They're in bondage to Egypt. They're in the midst of great trouble and trial and difficulty. They are under, as the Old Testament tells us, when they talk about these things, great affliction, the affliction of God's people in Egypt. And when God comes to Pharaoh in judgment against his sin, he declares that in Egypt, all of the firstborns are going to perish. And the only way possible was for salvation for the Hebrew people, for God's people, was to have this Passover meal. So they were to sacrifice a lamb. There were all these prescriptions They were to sacrifice a lamb. They were to spread the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their homes. They were to then gather under that blood inside of the home. They were not to be outside lest they were uh, to forfeit their life. They were to gather inside the home. But that wasn't it. When gathered inside the home after the lamb was sacrificed, they were then to take the meat of the lamb together with wine and with bread, and they were to prepare a meal. And then the night before they were actually delivered out of bondage, the the night prior to the expression of God's grace and kindness in saving them, they ate this meal together. They, They came around the table in their families, in their homes, and they participated in this meal. Beyond that then, the children of Israel were commanded by God to institute this annual meal to, to celebrate this meal annually as a perpetual memorial of the kindness and favor and the graciousness of God in this act of redemption and salvation. Now that's important so that if you're a Hebrew, you're an Israelite, this is the meal and the celebration that points to the apex or the epitome, if you will, of God's kindness and grace in delivering you that has been a part of your heritage and past for all of your life and all of that of your grandfather and your great-grandfather and your great-great-grandfather all the way back to the beginning of God's people when they were in Egypt. It was this perpetual, habitual ceremony. The interesting thing, though, is, is it was not the only 
deliverance of God. I mean, when, we, when we read the Old Testament, there are lots of examples of God's kindness and favor. There are lots of examples where God delivered them. I mean, immediately after this, Passover meal and the Passover, right, sparing these firstborns, they were delivered out of Egypt. You can think of the Red Sea. God holds the holds the ocean up, and they pass over on dry ground. God, you think about the deliverance that they experienced from Egypt. You think about the manna in the wilderness that sustained them, God's provision and kindness and grace in saving them from starvation. You think about God's deliverance, giving them victory over all the peoples of the land of Canaan, all of these enemies that sought to smite them. But he gives them this land, and he grants them miraculous, unbelievable victories and deliverances. This, this Passover was not the only deliverance of God's people, but we must understand that for the Israelite, it was the quintessential one. That's why Jesus sets his death inside of the framework of Passover. You see where he's going. Jesus is seeking to reorient their thinking regarding grace and salvation. Jesus takes what they understand about the quintessential, typical epitome of the salvation and deliverance of God that they celebrate year after year after year, and at that meal to explain to them the significance and the depth of God's grace that will be present through his death. He's, he's going to reorient their understanding. So what they would do is, they would take this meal. That is what's happening here, and it's important that we understand. Jesus gathers with them at this meal. When they took this meal, typically they gathered as families. And one of the things that would happen is the head of the family, the father, he would stand before the family and there was all of this ceremony and I'm not going to explain all of it to you. It's very lengthy, but essentially he would stand before the family and he would hold some of the cup or the bread or the lamb or some of these things. And there would be a question apparently from maybe a child or from someone ceremoniously about what made this night so different. And then he would stand and speak And he would declare unto them the significance of this night to his family. The significance of this sacrifice, this lamb on this day in Egypt that was made. And the way that that special sacrifice mitigated the wrath of God against those people, against the Israelites, God's people that came underneath it. And so it is then when Jesus gathers with his disciples that we should understand as he stands, it says, when he takes the bread and he takes the cup and he speaks to them. That would have been customary. That would have been ceremonial. That would have been the norm at this meal. They are celebrating a Passover meal together. And Jesus wants them to understand that all of the Passovers before find their culmination in his death and sacrifice. He wants them not to think of that day in Egypt as the apex of God's grace and kindness in delivering his people. But he wants them to see the death that he will offer up in the hours to come as that which should be commemorated for all time. So Luke 22, uh, Jesus says that he desires to eat this Passover with them before they suffer. How was this meal the same? Just, just very quickly, how was this meal the same with the Passover meals that they celebrated before? Well, it was a meal. It was in a home. They gathered together in a group. 
It was a meal that was intended to be eaten in that way. Gathered together around the table. It was a meal for which there was some ceremony and circumstance or there was some significance. Jesus stands with the cup and he declares unto them the significance of this meal. It was a meal that pointed to something other than the food on the table. There are some similarities, but I think we begin to understand the nature of the meal that they ate when we think about the differences. I only want to point to two, but they come to us in the words of Jesus. First, look at what Jesus says. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, and I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus is partaking and participating in this meal and asking his disciples to do so, not looking back on what God had done, not looking to the past for reconciliation with him and redemption, salvation from judgment, but looking forward. Looking forward for the first time ever. He wants them no longer to think of this meal only in the past. He's asking them to look forward to some future accomplishment, to some future fulfillment. That's very different. The second thing that he says, look, I've desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer. Notice that this Passover meal, unlike all of the historical ones that preceded it, was not in commemoration of the affliction of God's people, the language of Deuteronomy 26, nor of the suffering of the furry little lamb that was sacrificed, if we can think about it in those terms. But Jesus says, I am the one that is going to suffer. That this is a meal that is about me and my suffering and that which is coming in the future. This meal is totally different. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that this Passover meal is all about him. That he is the center of the history of God's people. That no longer are they to hold on to day after day and year after year what God did in Egypt. And to think on that day and that sacrifice as the apex and the epitome of God's graciousness in saving them. No, 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 no. He's saying that all of the sacrifices that have been made, they are all through redemptive history pointing to Jesus, finding their fulfillment in Christ. Tim Keller says it this way, that the death of Jesus, as he speaks of it here, he is helping his disciples to understand that it is the climax toward which all human history has been moving. That everything has been coming here to this day, to this death, to this blood. And so he is seeking to establish this as the central reality for the life of God's people. That it is the deliverance that secures salvation and redemption for God's people. It is the culmination of all that God has been doing in redemptive history. What he's saying is that this is the Passover, that that I am the Passover. And so he frames his death in the most significant historical event for the people to whom he speaks because he wants them to understand that he is going to become the center of their history, centrality. But look at something else. In doing so, he teaches them some significant realities about community. Yes, this is all about me. 
Yes, I want to reorient your historical thinking about the most central act and historical event that's taken place in your life. And it's going to become me. It's going to become the cross. It's going to become my blood and what I've done as the Passover lamb. But look, he comes to them with this meal that was on Passover. He, he desires to have this meal with them. Now, I said a moment ago, I mentioned that historically or customarily, they would have always, as they did in Egypt, gathered as families. How was the Passover meal celebrated? It was celebrated in your home, where the head of your home, the father, the man of that house, would stand and declare unto those underneath him, underneath his care, a part of his family, the significance of this meal. Something is different here, though. Think of the audacity of Jesus Christ calling all of these men, these disciples, together to celebrate Passover not with their families. Just think about it. For, all, for each of these disciples, as Peter is there and Matthew is there, all of these disciples, these 12, they have families at home on this night. We, we, we know that it is the day of Passover. If you go back to the beginning of Luke 22, verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And these men now are not at home with their families. They're now gathering around a table for a Passover meal, not at home with their wife and with their children. The audacity of Jesus to ask such a thing, why would he do so? Because not only does he want to reorient them around a historical event, he wants to make himself as the central event of their lives. He also wants to make them central to their identity. See, here's the reality. He's giving them a new community. They're to gather around this table. They're to celebrate this meal. They're to drink of this cup and eat of this bread. Not with those who were like them by blood. Well, at least not like them by the blood that ran in them. They were called to gather around the table with those who were like them because of the blood that covered over them. So that Jesus wants to become in this meal, not only the central reality and historical event of their life, the thing of central importance, he wants to become the central identity that they embrace. He wants them to gather around this meal as Christians, as those who have been redeemed, as those who are now brothers in Christ. They say blood is thicker than water, maybe. But it pales in comparison to the ability of the cross to unite people. So when we gather around this meal, when we come and we think about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, when we gather in this new community, friends, we must understand that this is not a community based on human attributes or likenesses. Just in this room. Okay, we're all pretty similarly skin-toned. But, but friends, it's irrelevant. We're young and old. We're smarter and less smart. We're from the right side of the tracks and the wrong side of the tracks, culturally speaking. We have successful, affluent jobs and not so much. Some have these gifts and some have those We have different 
perspectives. We have different views on life. We, to some degree, our homes look different. Our families look different. We are very different people. We struggle with different sins. We come from different places. But Jesus is telling his disciples, even by way of example, and calling them around this meal on this night, away from their families, he is calling them to understand, and us also, that because of the blood of Christ, we are more like one another than we are like anybody else in creation. It's why Jesus can call his disciples to forsake their mother and father and brother and sister. Not that those, not that those relationships are not significant, but because he wants to give us a new community. He wants to become the identity of the community of people that gather around the table. Now, that's a significant reality. He talks in this text here about this is the blood of the new covenant that is poured out for you. This covenant language, this is relational language. What he means is this is now a covenant community. This new community that is now established not by external realities, not by internal realities, but by an external reality. Not because of who I am or what I am or what I'm like or what I like, but because of Jesus in me, because of what Jesus has done for me. Right? And so we covenant together through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. We covenant together by professing to trust in the sacrifice that he's made. We covenant together having experienced the cross to become a new community with a new identity. The best example I can give to you is, I, I heard somebody give the example of an adopted child. I, I do not have adopted children in my family. I, I don't know what I would do with an adopted child in my family. I have all I can handle. By God's grace, I have biological children. But praise God for those adopted families. And and listen to me. I know plenty of families with adopted children. And what I know is those adopted children are not loved any less. Because they do not share the blood. What is it that they share? They share the experience of the family. They share those experiences that make them united as a family. What is his point? That the experience that unites us as family is the cross. That we gather only with those people who are our family because they too have experienced the cross. This is profoundly important by way of application when it comes to who can participate in this meal. That's why I'm laboring here for just a minute. It's the truth that we saw in Hebrews chapter 8 that in the new covenant, according to and by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the defining hallmark is now the regenerate hearts of his people in whom the spirit of God rests, in whom the law of God has been written and for whom the knowledge of God is already there. We may have to be reminded about his goodness and his presence, but we do not have to be convinced. And what he's saying, even by way of example, in calling these men audaciously away from their families to gather at Passover only with one another, is I want to give you a new community and a new community identity. The last thing that I want us to see is substitution. And then I'm going to make some practical application, but I want us to move on. Substitution. There's some debate in this text when you read the words of Christ here. He says that he desired to eat with them. And some read and understand this to say that that necessarily means that Jesus saw a lamb there or had in view like an actual Passover lamb there. 
I'm not so sure. The language to desire to eat this meal with you, I think is probably more to be understood in light of a general participation of the meal. If we want to be technical about eating, they did eat the bread together. But regardless of whether or not there was a lamb at this meal with his disciples or there wasn't a lamb at this meal with his disciples, the detail that is not up for discussion or is indisputable is that in the text, according to what these disciples participated in, they did not eat of the lamb. I think perhaps it's because there wasn't one present. When we think back on the Exodus account, the Passover in Egypt, these Israelites were to be saved not because they were Israelites. Note that. Not because they had been circumcised. Note that carefully. In fact, even as as an Israelite, the text tells them that if they were to be found outside of their house, outside of being underneath the blood of the lamb, if they were apart from the covering of the substitute, then they would perish. That's interesting. Even God's people. So the judgment comes on Egypt locally only in that place. But where the judgment of God comes, it comes completely. It was not any respecter of person. The only thing that saved the Israelites on that day was the blood of the substitute. So that when they had this meal and this celebration... Year after year after year, every meal that came after that, when they participated, they had to sacrifice a lamb. They had to spill his blood and they had to eat of the lamb in celebration of the substitute that God gave. Why, oh why, are the disciples at least not eating of a substitutionary lamb? Or likely, why was there no lamb present? You can see the disciples, can't you? They're reclining at the table with Jesus. They're gathering around it. Jesus has got the cup. He's got the bread. And they're all going, where's the main course? Between the cup and the bread would have come the lamb in order of service. Jesus, where is the Passover meal? Where's the main dish? Where's the substitute by whose blood we were delivered? Gives new meaning, doesn't it? This is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood. See, there was no lamb there that day. There's no lamb necessary to be sure. Because the lamb of God, Jesus, the sacrifice that was to be made was there. And he would be a substitute. He would be a substitute for God's people. For those who would gather underneath the blood of Jesus, not outside of it. For them, therefore, is now no condemnation. Just as completely as the wrath of God against sin comes for any and all who find themselves hiding under the substitute of the Lamb, Jesus. His wrath is just as universally mitigated. Praise be to God. These truths, these realities, this story, this framework, as I've alluded to, mentioned some of, I want to recap just a bit as we move to the Lord's table together in just a moment. 
But these truths that are drawn out of the text, they have profound impact on our understanding both of what we do when we come and how we do it. What is it that we do? Well, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is rebuking the church at Corinth because of their willy-nilly participation in this meal and their lack of understanding, if I can put it that way, and coming. On account of time, let's just pick up in verse 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, look what he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Friends, the most profound thing that I have to say to you is that no one is welcome to come around the table to celebrate the Passover that was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ spilled for our sins that has not through faith and repentance taken hold of that sacrifice. This time is for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ only. Because when we come, we do a few things. We profess corporately around the table in community and personally to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Passover lamb, that his blood delivers us from the wrath of God, that it is sufficient and it only is sufficient, that what he has done enables the people of God to experience the fullness of God's grace that was evidenced to to God's people at the Passover. We profess to believe these realities. And friends, I ask you, who, not genuinely believing those realities in their heart, can corporately or personally make that profession with, without profaning the blood? Friends, it was a meal. And I don't want to take the, I don't want to make it too analogous, but, but, but it was a meal. I can't eat the meal for you. We come around this meal to celebrate what Jesus has done. You can't eat the meal for me. The sufficient sacrifice of Jesus is personally appropriated, the way Tim Keller said it. It is not something you can do for another. And so, friends, as much as I would want to, I cannot eat this meal for my children. Until they, by the grace of God, come to know and understand both their need for Christ and the sufficiency of what he's done as the Passover lamb of God, taking away God's wrath against me, there is no place for them at the table. It's personally appropriated. It is only for the people of God. It is only for those who share this community identity. Those who gather around the table, not because they are family. Those who gather around the table, not because they are blood. Those who gather around the table, not because they are alike each other in this life, but those who gather around the table only because they are alike each other being covered by the blood of Jesus. That's it. One of the other things that we do is we remember. Not only do we profess to believe these things, we remember and are reminded of the great sacrifice and the cost of our deliverance and freedom. 
Friends, that's why we eat it again and again and again, isn't it? There is no place where sinners, even those who are saints, but where sinners, whether they are Christians or unchristians, where they are more confronted with the reality of their unworthiness before God than when we eat a meal memorializing the cost of their salvation and forgiveness. You say, well, what about the unbeliever? What about the non-community or covenant member that doesn't participate? Friends, their exclusion, whether that's for child or adult, should be a stark reminder to them that I am out from under the blood of the substitute. I I was sharing the gospel with someone a couple of weeks ago. Chase and I both were. As simply as we could over lunch. And asked this individual if they were going to go to heaven. They very plainly said, oh no. And we said, well, you can. And then he began to speak of all of the things that he does. And as gently as I could, with all the love that I can have for him, I care for this guy. I said, brother, as long as you're trusting in any of those things that you can do, you will die and you will perish. It is only when we come to understand our identity in Jesus, the value of his merit and obedience, and the sufficiency of his blood that we are reminded about at this table, that we can be saved and that we have any business coming. Not only do we remember, we confess. So that's another step, not meaning to be semantic, but it's one thing to remember and be reminded of our sin and separation. It's another thing altogether to be those Christians who confess our unworthiness and sin examining and judging ourselves, confessing our transgressions and sin against a holy and righteous God. And so in order to be faithful to the testimony of 1 Corinthians 11 and other places in the New Testament, we come with deep reflection and confession. Fourthly, we look forward. Just as Jesus, I think, wanted his disciples, we look forward. Friends, yes, this time is a sweet glimpse of the grace of God but it is only a glimpse. Is this a means of God's grace in our life? You bet it is. But it is not the grace of God in its fullness. Friends, it points us forward. It lifts our eyes and directs them toward one day. The day of the return of Jesus. The day when we will be separated from our sin. The day when the fullness of God's grace through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ will be completely effectualized and brought into our lives as a true and real um, permanent experience. When we will be with God forever. When we, when, friends, this meal should make us to long for the meal that we will have with God one day. When we gather around the table, not not to memorialize, but we gather around the table with the Lord himself. It should encourage us to look forward. And so how do we do these things? That's what we do. As I've said, we come as those believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, professing the sufficiency of his sacrifice as the Lamb of God, confessing our sins before him, remembering what cost it was to God, our sacred 
deliverance and salvation and looking forward with hope to the day of his return when we will be united with him. But friends, we should come with some trepidation and humility. We should also, though, come with confidence. I think Jesus wanted his disciples to understand his death because I think he wanted them to find hope and confidence in his death. When you come before God, if you're under the blood of the substitute, you come before God clean, having been made right, having been made new. And friends, his blood is sufficient to cover every sin of the past, every sin of the present, and every sin of the future. Every sin of omission every sin of commission and every sin of unintention that you don't even know you committed. His blood is sufficient.